The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. We are looking for a fifth and, I believe, God willing, a final time this morning at Genesis 22. We began with two sermons that focused on the human side, on Abraham, and uh, what it was like for him uh, in faith to offer his son Isaac as a burnt offering. Uh, we looked uh, for two weeks at types uh, that are fulfilled in the sacrifice in Genesis 22. And now, uh, the fifth message, I'm going to take one of those little threads just one detail, specifically the place of the offering, and trace it out across the Scripture. We're going to move out and look at how it is true that on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is Thanksgiving time, and for me it's one of my favorite celebrations of the year. In December of 1620, the uh, pilgrims came to Cape Cod, and I know how cold it is in December in Cape Cod. But they landed after a difficult voyage and immediately got on their knees and gave thanks for his good provision in getting them there safely. This is the way they thought. Everything came to them from the hand of God. And so they were always looking for providence, for provision. But it was a very difficult experience. The harshness of the following winter almost destroyed their colony. Sickness ravaged them that winter. Statistically, by the beginning of spring in 1621, half of their 102 members had perished. Of the 17 male heads of families, 10 died during the first infection. Of the 17 wives, only three were left after three months. Governor William Bradford wrote that the living were scarce able to bury the dead. At any given point, only six or seven people were healthy enough to do all the work of caring for the others, fetching firewood, cooking, washing, loathsome clothes by hand. Bradford wrote that these heroes did all the homely and necessary offices for the sick, which dainty and queasy stomachs cannot endure to hear named. And all of this willingly and cheerfully, without grudging in the least. Can you imagine the difficulties of making it through that first winter? The turning point for the colony began one Thursday in the middle of March, 1621, when they met an Indian named Tai Squantum, also known as Squanto. Squanto was, they believed, a special instrument of God for their good beyond their expectation. He had found, in effect, his reason for living, because these English were helpless in the ways of the wilderness. They would not have survived without him. Squanto taught them how to catch eels. Why you would want to do that, I don't know. But he did teach them how to catch eels. Apparently, they were very sweet for those that like that kind of thing. He taught them how to stalk deer, how to plant pumpkins, how to refine maple syrup, to discern both edible herbs and those that are good for medicine. Perhaps the most important thing he did was teach them the Indian way of planting corn. They would put five kernels in a a small, shallow pit with three fish uh, in a kind of a star-like pattern with the heads pointing in toward the kernels. Uh, Also, they needed to guard the fields all the time, 24 hours a day, from the wolves who would try to dig up the fish. And as a result, they ended up with 20 full acres of corn, which saved their lives the next winter. 
Squanto also taught them how to exploit the pelts of the beaver, which was in plentiful supply and in great demand throughout Europe. He taught them not only how to, how to hunt them and prepare them, but also what were the best prices and how not to get uh, taken for granted or taken for a ride by the traders that came. And so the pilgrims rightly ascribed their health and their prosperity in one sense at the human level to Squanto. But ultimately, as good Bible-believing Christians, they ascribed it to providence. They believed in the providence of God. They believed that the Bible teaches that God rules over all things and that everything we get comes from Him, from His hand. And so, no, they were not getting together uh, at Thanksgiving to thank the Indians. I'm sure they did thank the Indians somewhat. But, uh, no, they were there to thank God because they believed in the doctrine of providence. But as great as was the providence of God to them that first year and through the second winter, how much greater was the providence of God at Mount Moriah for them? On the mountain of the Lord, it has been provided. And I get the joyful news of proclaiming that today. What better thing can there be than that? On the mountain of the Lord, there has been full provision for sin. So today's sermon is a story of providence. It's a story that those first pilgrims would have truly enjoyed and did enjoy hearing. It's a story of God's full provision for sin. And it begins with Abraham's walk by faith, in which he was told, in effect, go to the land, I will show you. Now, he was used to hearing that. The whole thing began for Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, in which it says, The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. It says in Hebrews 11:8, By faith Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. And so it was also in this case. God called Abraham to go to a place he would show him. Follow me by faith. Go where I tell you, and I'll point out the place. Look at God's command here. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says, Sometime later, God tested Abraham. He said to him, Abraham, here I am, he replied. Then God said, Take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering. On one of the mountains I will tell you about. So the general region was chosen and selected by God, designated by God, but God also had a specific mountain that he had picked out, and it was going to be on that mountain that Isaac was to be sacrificed. Now, in the account, the place is prominent. It's actually very important in the account. Eight times it is mentioned in this account. Eight times. We've already read in verse 2, go to the region of Moriah, that's the first. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains I will tell you about, that's the second. In verse 3, after he had uh, prepared, it says he set out for the place that God had told him about. That's the third. On the third day, Abraham looked up and saw the place in a distance. That's the fourth. He said to his servant, stay here with the, uh, with the donkey while I and the boy go over there. That's the fifth. And then after the conversation about, about the lamb and who will provide the lamb, in verse 8, Abraham answered, God himself will provide the lamb. Uh, for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together, verse 9, when they had reached the place God had told him about. There it is. And then at the end, in verse 14, so Abraham called that place, the Lord will provide. And it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This is an intense focus on this place. 
It's very striking, really, eight times in these 14 verses. And not only that, but the scripture indicates that God talked to Abraham about the place. He communicated, go to the place and, and, and sacrifice him on one of the mountains I will tell you about. He's going to talk to him about the place as he goes. So evidently, God had revealed some things to Abraham, such that when he reached the foot of it, he knew that that was the place because God had told him. There was some kind of a communication about it. And the name of the mountain was the mountain of the Lord. This sacred place had a name before the encounter, the mountain of the Lord. But by the end of the encounter, Abraham gave it a fuller and more complete name. Jehovah Jireh, the Lord will provide. Now, I believe in the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament, you can sum it up, the central question of the Old Testament is that which was spoken by Isaac. Where is the lamb? That is the central question. Now, you say, how is that? Well, because animal sacrifice was nothing more than a symbol. And all the time we're waiting, where is the lamb? That is the Old Testament question. Where is the lamb for the sacrifice? The central New Testament answer was given by John the Baptist. Behold the Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Old Testament, where is the Lamb? New Testament, behold the Lamb. This is the provision that is provided on the mountain of the Lord. Now, Isaac asked the question, where is the Lamb? And it's interesting in verse 8, Abraham answers in the NIV, it says, God himself will provide the Lamb for the burnt offering, my son. But the NIV is the only version that translates it that way. Literally, in the Hebrew, I think the ESV does a good job here. God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. There's a subtle difference there. In effect, the idea is that only God can atone or provide an atonement himself. He's the only one who can turn his own wrath away. No other created being could come up with an offering that could do it. God's got to, to use the technical theological term, propitiate himself. He's got to turn his own wrath away. And that's exactly what Abraham says. God will provide for himself the lamb. No human offering can do it. Now, let's look at this word provide. It says on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. This idea of provision. Now, the simple meaning in English is to make something available to meet a need. For example, the host provided his guests with water and towels so they could wash for the meal. So, in other words, he provided or gave them what they needed to meet the need. But the literal English meaning of the word provide comes from the Latin means pro beforehand and video to see, to see ahead of time. And so it works this way. The host knowing or seeing that his guests would need to wash up after their difficult journey, provided water and towels, you see. And that's exactly what's going on literally in the Hebrew here. The literal Hebrew verb is, God will see for himself the lamb for the burnt offering. And how is it possible? Because God's vision transcends his history. He sees the end from the beginning. And so all of this message that I'm going to preach today will make no sense if God has no accurate and perfect foreknowledge of the future. But he does. He sees the end from the beginning. And so as we're going to line up God's provisions at Mount Moriah, the ram in the thicket, Solomon's temple, and Christ's cross and empty tomb, it's not an accident that they line up. God had chosen a place. He had seen the place ahead of time before the foundation of the world. God was seeing Christ before Abraham and Isaac began their journey 
to Moriah. God was seeing Christ before Abraham and Isaac were born. God was seeing Christ before the world began. From eternity past, God saw the Lamb of God slain from the foundation of the world. God will see the Lamb for himself, my son. Behold the Lamb. Now let's look at the first provision at Mount Moriah. And it's very simple. It's the ram in the thicket. The ram in the thicket caught by his horns was provided by God. God provided that ram. Now it wouldn't do at all to send Abraham home with no sacrifice having been offered. That would have sent the wrong message. And what is the right message? The right message is all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the right message. Isaac was a sinner. He needed a substitute. The right message is also the wages of sin is death. If Isaac won't die, something must die. There must be a substitute. And so it would not do to send Abraham home without having offered something. And so the ram in the thicket was God's provision for that. In order for a sinner to approach the thrice holy God, there must be a blood penalty paid. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Hebrews 9.22. So either Isaac would die for his own sins, or there would be some substitute, some provision. So the ram of the thicket is clearly a substitute for Isaac. Look at verse 13 and 14. Abraham looked up, and there in the thicket he saw a ram caught by its horns. He went over and took the ram and sacrificed it as a burnt offering instead of his son, as we highlighted in the past. This is so important. In the place of, or taking the place of the son, the ram in the thicket. And what is the key lesson? Well, in verse 14, So Abraham called that place, The Lord will provide. And to this day it is said, On the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. So Abraham's name for the sacred place, as we've mentioned, was Jehovah Jireh. The Lord will see to it. You could put it that way. He will see to it. He will see what needs to be done and he will provide. This was the proverb. And to this day it is still spoken. And what will be provided on the mountain of the Lord? Well, a substitute for sins. That's what will be provided on the mountain of the Lord. That's the first provision. The second provision happened in the unfolding of redemptive history. You know that Abraham's descendants were enslaved in a country not their own for 400 years. Just as God had told Abraham it would happen, so it happened in Genesis 15. Now, in Abraham's time, there was a pattern of holy ground. Abraham, as you know, built altars as he would pilgrim through the, the uh, promised land. He would build these altars, for example, in Genesis 13:18. So Abraham moved his tents and went to live near the great trees of Mamre at Hebron where he built an altar to the Lord. And so that's holy ground. That's the place where he would set up an altar. And you would go there regularly and he would worship there. So also we see the same with Jacob. You remember when he's making his, his journey eventually to find his, his wife as he was traveling. Uh, he stops at a place and has a dream. And in the dream, there's a, there's a staircase extending from, from earth to heaven, from heaven to earth. And there are angels ascending and descending on the staircase. It's an incredible dream. And he wakes up and he says, Surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God, Bethel. This is the gate of heaven. And so he, he sets up a pillar and pours oil on it. It's kind of a, uh, a commemora commemoration that this was a holy place. Or again, on uh, Mount Sinai, in the burning bush, the account of the burning bush, you remember what the angel of the Lord said. 
to Moses. Do not come near. Take off your shoes for the place where you're standing is holy ground. So there's this sense of a holy place, holy ground. Well, when, when God brought his people out of Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and, and Pharaoh was destroyed, all of his army destroyed, and then God brought them to Sinai and, and gave them the law, he gave them provision for worship. One of the provisions for worship was something called a tabernacle. It's a tent. And the thing about a tent is it's movable. It can move from place to place. And in the tent, there was something called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And within that would be the Ark of the Covenant, the golden Ark of the Covenant. And on the top of the Ark were were cherubim. And there the blood of the sacrifice would be poured. And God said, there above the Ark in the most holy place, I will meet with the people on the basis of the blood that's poured out. The thing is that the tabernacle was movable. It would move from place to place. It was a journey that God was taking with his people. It turned out much longer than it would have been if they had simply obeyed him and entered the promised land. But as they're traveling from place to place, the holy place is moving as well. And the pillar of cloud and the pillar of fire, it's moving. The moving of God from place to place. But as he was going, he was speaking to the people. Through Moses. And in the book of Deuteronomy, he said very plainly, when they enter the promised land, this traveling is going to stop. You must go to the place that I choose from all the tribes, and there you must worship. That's what it says in Deuteronomy 12. You must not worship the Lord your God in their way, in the pagan way, but you are to seek the place the Lord your God will choose from among all your tribes to put his name there for his dwelling. To that place you must go. And there bring your burnt offerings and sacrifices, your tithes and special gifts, which you have vowed to give, your free will offerings and the firstborn of your uh, herds and flocks. And so God, and he says this again and again in the book of Deuteronomy. This is a major theme. Go to the one place three times a year. All of the Israelite males were to appear at that one place that God would choose from among the tribes. And there they would offer their sacrifices. Well, after, under Joshua, in the time of Joshua, they entered and took the promised land. They conquered it. And God, the time came for God to select the place. And the place was Jerusalem. It was the city of David. Now, Jerusalem was a Jebusite city. In other words, the Jebusite people were living there. And it was awfully tough to conquer it. It was a tough nut to crack. It was a citadel, a mountain fortress. And it was very, very tough to get in. As a matter of fact, the Jebusites mocked and said even the lame and blind could defend against David. And it became a proverb when he talked about the lame and blind that helped conquer the city. But David was able to take it. And he took the fortress of Zion, the city of Zion, the city of David, and made it his own. That was his capital. And once he was established there, he built a beautiful uh, palace of cedar. And how aromatic it must have been. How beautiful it must have smelled as he's there. But he's got a heart for the Lord. And he's saying, here I am in this palace of cedar, and God's still living in a tent. He doesn't think this is right. He wants to bring the Lord to Jerusalem and he wants to build a house for the Lord, a permanent dwelling place, a resting place where the people of God can come and and offer. Well, Nathan the prophet initially says, well, God is with you, do whatever you want to do. But then God has different plans, speaks to Nathan again short time thereafter and says, go back and tell David, are you the one to build a house for me? Have I ever said I wanted a palace of cedar? Is this what I asked for? No, actually, I'm going to build a house for you. I'm going to raise up your son from your own body, and he will be the one to build a house for me. 
Now, there's a double hearing there, isn't there? Because the immediate fulfillment is Solomon, David's biological son. And Solomon literally builds the temple for God, a physical structure, a house, the house of the Lord. But it is Jesus, the ultimate son of David, who builds the eternal house. And we are his house, the scripture says, the book of Hebrews says. We believers are like living stones, and he's building this house, and he's been building it for all this time. But I'm getting away, that's a whole other sermon for another day. All I'm saying right now is that, no, David, you're not going to build the house, but it will be your son who will build it. The question is, where? Where should it be built? Well, in the course of time, David sinned greatly against the Lord. He decided to have a sinful census, to number the fighting men. He wanted to find out how much military strength he had. You know, the scripture says, some trust in horses and some in chariots, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Well, it seemed David wasn't trusting that at that moment. And it doesn't say directly why it was sinful, but it was sinful. Joab knew it was sinful. But, but David overruled Joab, his commander, and said, go ahead and count them. And he did. And he counted the military men. And then God said, I'm greatly displeased with you. God was determined to punish David for the sinful census. He gave him one of three options. You can have David three years of famine. Or secondly, you can have three months of fleeing from before your enemies. Or third, three days of the sword of the Lord, a plague with the angel of the Lord ravaging every part of Israel. That's what you can choose. David was in anguish, as you can well imagine. Because of his sin, other people were going to die. But he chose the third option. He said, let us fall into the hands of the Lord, for he is merciful. And so he did. And 70,000 people died because of David's sin. Now, heads of houses, pastors, leaders of countries, keep in mind, it may not be you directly that suffers for your sin. Sometimes the punishment gets poured out on those you're responsible for. 70,000 people died because of David's sin. And in 1 Chronicles 21, it tells of the end of that plague. And I will read it. It says, God sent an angel to destroy Jerusalem. But as the angel was doing so, the Lord saw it and was grieved because of the calamity and said to the angel who was destroying the place, Enough! Withdraw your hand. The angel of the Lord was then standing at the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. David looked up and saw the angel of the Lord standing between heaven and earth with a, with a drawn sword in his hand extended over Jerusalem. Then David and the elders clothed in sackcloth fell face down. David said to God, Was it not I who ordered the fighting men to be counted? I am the one who has sinned and done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? O oh Lord my God, let your hand fall upon me and my family, but do not let this plague remain on your people. And the angel of the Lord ordered Gad to tell David to go up and build an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of Aruna, the Jebusite. David built an altar to the Lord there and sacrificed burnt offerings and fellowship offerings. He called on the Lord and the Lord answered him with fire from heaven on the altar of the burnt offering. Then the Lord spoke to the angel and he put the sword back in its sheath. At that time, when David saw that the Lord had answered him on the threshing floor of Arun of the Jebusite, he offered sacrifices there. The tabernacle of the Lord, which Moses had made in the desert, and the altar burnt offering were at that time on the high place of Gibeon. But David could not go before it to inquire of God because he was afraid of the sword of the angel of the Lord. Then David said, the house of the Lord God is to be here and also the altar of the burnt offerings for Israel. So, the temple was going to be built on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite, where God had answered him with fire from heaven. 
and the, and the plague had ended. Now, where was the threshing floor of Arunah the Jebusite? Well, Second Chronicles 3.1 tells us. It says that Solomon began to build the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah. Did you hear that? Mount Moriah. Hey, this is why I'm an inerrantist. I can base a whole sermon on one verse, 2 Chronicles 3.1. Yes, in one verse it says that the temple was built on Mount Moriah, on the threshing floor of Aruna the Jebusite. That was the location of the temple. That was God's second provision on the mountain of the Lord. On the mount of the Lord it will be provided. And what was provided? A semi-permanent dwelling place for the house of God, a semi-permanent dwelling place where lasting animal sacrifices could be offered. The Passover sacrifice would be offered there. And as they were building the sanctuary, as they were building this magnificent temple of Solomon, they came to the Holy of Holies and they built it out of gold. And I find it fascinating, it says in Second Chronicles 3, 8 and 9, he built the most holy place, its length corresponding to the width of the temple, 20 cubits long and 20 cubits wide. He overlaid the inside with 600 talents of fine gold. That's about 23 tons of fine gold. Now listen, the gold nails weighed 50 shekels. He also overlaid the upper parts with gold. I find this fascinating. You realize the holy of holies of Solomon's temple were built with golden nails. But you know, that's not the true Holy of Holies, is it? God had ordained eventually that it would be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar, king of the Babylonians. No, the true Holy of Holies was built with iron nails, Roman nails. Because Christ's body and the blood he shed there, that's the Holy of Holies. That's the true place. That's the sacrifice. But the first Holy of Holies built on Mount Moriah was built with golden nails. I find that fascinating. And then Solomon prayed the prayer of dedication concerning the temple and the Holy of Holies. And he said, Now arise, O Lord God, and come to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. And so this was symbolic. God was going to come and rest. And so the, the glory of God, the cloud, the glory cloud of God filled the temple that day. A visible representation of the presence of God. God has stopped his journeying. And now he's come into his resting place symbolically. Now, this was, I believe, God's lasting but temporary provision at Mount Moriah. There on Mount Moriah, God came to dwell in symbolic form. And there the Jews were to arrange themselves three times a year to offer their burnt offerings. There on Mount Moriah, on the mountain of the Lord, it was, it was provided, animal sacrifice. This was a temporary and symbolic provision. At Solomon's temple on Mount Moriah, the mountain of the Lord, day after day, the priests stood and performed their ministry. Day after day, they offered animal sacrifice. For it says in Leviticus 17.11, The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for your life. However, these were only, it says in Hebrews 10.3 and 4, an annual reminder of sins. Why? The blood of bulls and goats, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Bulls and goats do not equal the value of a human being. And so therefore their blood is no permanent and final provision for sin. And so Isaac's question still stands. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Year after year these priests offered their sacrifices. And it was just an annual reminder of wickedness and sinfulness. Where is the lamb? Well, the Lord's final provision on Mount Moriah was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was Jesus' own Son. 
Now, Christ came into the world, the scripture says, very plainly, to die. His purpose was to die. That was not his only purpose, but it was his central purpose. He came to atone for sin. Now, listen what it says in Hebrews 10, 5 through 7. When Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offerings you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. God provided a body for Jesus. The incarnation is that Jesus took on a body, a human body. And he laid that body down as an atoning sacrifice, the blood which was necessary for the forgiveness of our sins. What was the will of God for Christ's body? Listen to this. John 10, 17 and 18. It says, The reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus is saying, I have the power to die whenever I choose. And I have the power to live again whenever I choose. And I have a command from the Father to lay down my life. And so he would. And so it says also in Matthew 20, 28, The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The question is, where? Where would he die? Had that been figured out too? Was the place of Jesus' sacrifice also determined? Was it also written down? The answer is yes. In Mark 10, 32-34, it says, They were on their way up to Jerusalem, with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished, while those who followed were afraid. Again, he took the twelve aside and told them what was going to happen to him. We are going up to Jerusalem, he said, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. And will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. Three days later, he will rise. Jesus had to die in Jerusalem. That's where he was going. Just as it says in Luke 9.51, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. That was to be the finish line of his earthly physical ministry. He was to die in Jerusalem. Now... The time of Jesus' death was set by prophecy. He would die at the time of the sacrifice of the Passover lamb. He was the Passover lamb, so he would die at Passover time. The circumstances of his death were set by prophecy. He would die having been betrayed by a close friend for 30 pieces of silver. He would die having been rejected by his own people. That was set in prophecy as well. The manner of his death was set by prophecy. He would be pierced for our transgressions and he would be lifted up like a bronze serpent, like Moses lifted up the bronze serpent on the stake. So he would be lifted up and pierced. So the mode or manner of his death was set by prophecy. Let me ask you a question. Do you think that God left the place out? Do you think he said, well, all of that will be specified clearly, but not the place? Oh, of course not. It's going to be on Mount Moriah. There's no doubt about it. Jesus was going to die on Mount Moriah. Just as it is said to this day, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. And so the Lord would die. Now, where was Christ sacrificed? Where was he sacrificed? Well, he was sacrificed at Golgotha. Well, the question is, where is Golgotha? This is not actually very easy to determine. The word Golgotha simply means the place of the skull, Matthew 27, 33. But Golgotha was still in Jerusalem proper. It was still on Mount Moriah. For Revelation 11.8, John tells us this. Their bodies, 
the two witnesses there, will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt. Listen, where also their Lord was crucified. Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem proper. Even better, it says in John 19.20, speaking of the sign that Pilate had put over his head, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. It was written in three languages. It says in John 19, many people read it, it says, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So it was right there. And then thirdly, Hebrews 13.12 says that Jesus suffered outside the city gate to make the people holy through his own blood. So what does this tell me? Well, Mount Moriah is a kind of a complex of mountains, like a ridge. And so Jerusalem, the city, is built on one section of it. But just outside the gate, that's where Jesus was crucified. And why would the Roman soldiers make a crucified man walk 10 or 15 miles or something like that? I mean, he'd bring him outside the city gate, and there they would crucify him. As a warning to the people in the city. All of these signs point to God's eternal provision. Jesus Christ was sacrificed for our sins. Let me ask you a question. Why does God do this? Why so much precision about the time and the manner and mode and place? Why, why, why? So that you may be saved. So that people to the ends of the earth can hear this story and marvel at the complexity of the threads that are woven together in this gospel. It is beyond human ken. We can't put something like this together. The quality is too high. Jesus did many miracles, not just one. And Jesus fulfilled many prophecies not just one. And so it is said, on the mountain of the Lord, it will be provided. Can I tell you today? So the greatest joy of my life is to tell you, on the mountain of the Lord, it has been provided. It's done. Jesus said it is finished. And a full provision of sin was made when Jesus shed his blood. But that's not all, folks, because God did not leave Jesus dead on Mount Moriah. We've still got some work to do because he must be raised from the dead. And so on the mountain of the Lord, a full provision has to, be, has to be made. Now, for these verses, I'm going to reach to the visions of Isaiah. And these are so important to what it is I'm trying to present that I've printed them out in your bulletin. So take a minute and look in your bulletin. Or if you prefer to read them right in your Bible, that's fine. But look at Isaiah 25, 6 through 9. This is the second significant prophecy concerning the mountain of the Lord. Actually, there are many more than that. The second one that I want to zero in on. You say, what happened to the first? We'll get to that. I haven't forgotten it. Let's look at the second one first. Isaiah 25, 6 through 9 says this. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. Verse 7. On this mountain, he will... Destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove the disgrace of his people from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. In that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted in him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Now, twice it says, on this mountain. On this mountain. On what mountain? Well, in context, it can be none other than the mountain of the Lord's temple, using Isaiah's language. The mountain of the Lord's temple. It's Jerusalem, God's holy hill, Mount Zion. Well, what's going to happen on this mountain? Well, it says, the Lord Almighty is going to spread a feast of rich food for all peoples with the highest quality food and drink. 
me tell you something about Isaiah. He is a visionary prophet. You close your eyes and listen and you see images. But his images are spiritual. I'm not saying they're not physical because there's always a physical side to them. But he's using spiritual language to talk, or physical language to talk about a spiritual feast. How do I know that? Well, you've got to keep reading. What is this rich feast? What is this banquet that he's going to spread? Well, none other, my friends, than the destruction of death. He's going to destroy the shroud that covers all nations, the sheet that enfolds all peoples. He's going to swallow up death forever. And where is he going to do it? He's going to do it on this mountain. He's going to destroy death. And so it is, on Mount Moriah, Jesus Christ destroyed death forever by his crucifixion. But if he had not been raised from the dead on the third day, we could not say that death was destroyed. We need a resurrection, right? And so, on this mountain also, Jesus destroyed death forever by his resurrection. Now, where was Jesus buried? Are you wondering? He was buried on Mount Moriah. Isn't that magnificent? Listen, in John 19, 41 and 42. At the place where Jesus was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had ever been laid. And because it was the Jewish day of preparation, and since the tomb was nearby, they laid Jesus there. Right there on Mount Moriah, he's buried. And therefore, Isaiah 25 7 and 8 is fulfilled because on this mountain, Jesus destroyed death forever by his resurrection from the dead. All right, well, what is the first mention of the mountain of the Lord's temple? Well, it's in Isaiah 2. It's also printed in your bulletin. And here's where it gets final and complete and the gospel extends. You know, Mount Everest is the highest mountain in the world. Mount Blanc is the highest mountain in Europe. Mount McKinley, the highest mountain in North America. There are an awful lot of mountains that are taller than Mount Moriah. But Mount Moriah is the chief among the mountains on the earth. And this is what it says in Isaiah 2. This is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as chief among the mountains. It will be raised above the hills and all nations will stream to it. Many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. So what does Isaiah see concerning Judah and Jerusalem? Well, at a certain point, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established, and all nations, the Gentiles, are going to go streaming to it. Now, you may ask, why then isn't there a pilgrimage like there is to Mecca? Well, Jesus covered that in the verse that we read earlier in John 4. Woman, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. You don't need to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem, to the mountain, to Mount Moriah. You don't have to go there. Because once Jesus physically died, and once he was raised from the dead... You don't have to make a physical pilgrimage because God is spirit and you can worship him right here in Durham, North Carolina. Amen. Amen. And so we don't need to physically go to any mountain. But still, there's a streaming of the nations, isn't there? There are people that are going there spiritually, in their hearts, in their minds. They're thinking, the most important thing that has ever happened to me happened 2,000 years before I died, or I was born. 2,000 years before I was born, Jesus died on the cross. And so in my heart, I'm at Mount Moriah. That's where it was provided for me. It's my only hope. On the mountain of the Lord, it has been provided for me, a sinner. Okay, what's the final mention of the mountain of the Lord's temple in Isaiah? Well, it's not in your bulletin, but it's in Isaiah 66, 19 and 20. There he says this, I will set a sign among them, and from them I will send survivors to the nations. They're going to go out to the nations. Survivors are going to go out. 
to Tarshish, Pool and Lud, who draw the bow, to Tubal and Javan, to the coastlands far off that have not heard of my fame or seen my glory. And they shall declare my glory among the nations, and they shall bring all your brothers from all the nations as an offering to the Lord, on horses and in chariots and litters. They're all moving, and where are they going? They're going to the mountain of the Lord's temple. They're streaming there. Are they going there physically? We already answered that. Jesus said, you don't need to go anywhere physically. But they're streaming there. This is the advance of the gospel, beginning in Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. And Isaiah saw it. And it's they're all going to the mountain of the Lord's temple. You know why? Because on the mountain of the Lord, it has been provided. And so that feast that is mentioned in Isaiah 25, that banquet of rich foods, that is provision from the Lord. And what does he say in Isaiah 55? But he says... Come, all you who are thirsty, come, buy and eat. Come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Why spend money on what is not bread and your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me and eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest of fare. What have we learned today? Well, God specified a specific place for Abraham to sacrifice his son Isaac. He said, go to the place I will show you. Mount Moriah. And he led him right to it. That place Abraham designated as the mountain of the Lord. And he coined a phrase, a proverb saying, on the mountain of the Lord it will be provided. Before Israel entered the promised land, God told Israel through Moses in the book of Deuteronomy, you must not worship under any spreading tree or anywhere you want, but you must go to the place I choose. And there you must worship. Where was it? It was on Mount Moriah. That's where God ended the the plague during the time of David's sinful census. And that's where Solomon built the temple. But that was only God's second provision on Mount Moriah, the temple of the Lord. He was still asking Isaac's question, where's the lamb? And then John the Baptist points him and says, behold the lamb, see him, look at him, behold the lamb. He is God's final provision on Mount Moriah. And Jesus had to journey, he had to travel, and he goes back to Mount Moriah, just like Abraham and Isaac did. He goes and there he dies. What Abraham was asked to do, God the Father did. And he literally died, and he was raised from the dead on the third day. That is God's final provision. And now, survivors, messengers, are going out to the ends of the earth, to the coastlands and the distant islands who have not heard of God's fame or seen his glory, and they are proclaiming that on the mountain of the Lord it has been provided. Come and eat. The feast is spread. Come to the table, sit down and eat. Now, what is the application for you? Well, if you're not a believer, you need to come and sit down and eat by faith. You need to trust in Jesus Christ to be your atoning sacrifice for sin. There is no other. Those of you that are quavering concerning the word of God, quaver no longer. Who could ever have put something like this together? It's too intricate. It's too perfect. This is the word of God, not merely the word of man. So lose forever any doubt about a single verse in the Bible. It was a kind of a linchpin in the middle part. I had to have 2 Chronicles 3.1. God gave it to me. Praise the Lord. But there it is. The tabernacle, the temple. The temple was built on Mount Moriah. Don't doubt the word of God anymore. And this week, when you're thanking him for provision and family and all of God's good gifts, for every good and perfect gift comes down from above, thank him more than anything for this provision. Provision for your sin. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians 
make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.